This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get up there! Yeah! 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 Good boy! Good boy, Ranger! Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many, day, how many days a week can you spend As much as I can, to be honest with you. Anytime that I get, I'm, I'm out there. Join us for every heart-pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm going to hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. <laughs> In this week's episode of the Houndsman XP podcast, we got a great one, guys. I have been going to the New Mexico Houndsman Association meetings for the last two years, and I like to go to the UKC night hunts and the poor boy hunts just to experience something different and meet most of the club's core members. And the very first uh, UKC hunt I joined, I met a lot of great people there. But one of the more interesting characters I met was Mr. Fred Moore. And Fred has been uh, raccoon hunting cat hunting, fox hunting, you name it, hunting with hounds for a very long time. And everybody knows that I'm really drawn to people that have been doing this for 50 years or more. So I uh, made it a point to have Fred on the show. And luckily for me, he was more than game. So we sat down and had a great interview, had a lot of fun. Honestly, we went a long time. The episode's pushing about a little under two hours, but I hope you guys love it as much as I did. I didn't want to stop. But I figured I would, and maybe we could make a part two coming up. Before we get there, guys, I want to talk real quick about Patreon and some of the new stuff that's coming out on the Patreon page. Very soon, on the Patreon page, we're going to have our first Patreon live event, where me, Chris, Shorty, and Lauren, the whole HXP crew, sit down with our patrons, and we talk about anything we want. 
You can ask questions about uh, prior episodes. We've been getting lots of engagement on the Houndswin XP podcast group on Facebook from our great fans who have questions and comments about last episodes. Uh, this is a great time to come in, have a question, comment. Let's just chat about anything. The, the Patreon page is a really great place for us to have a very safe uh, area to talk about however we want. And I think that's really important to have places like that where we can talk about the nitty gritty, the details, everything that comes to your mind that you may not want to talk about on Facebook because of whatever reason, this is a great place to ask those questions and just hang out with other like-minded houndsmen and women who just love talking about dogs. So you're going to see ads for that. If you're a patron already, they're going to come right to your inbox when I post it on the Patreon page. And I'm also going to advertise it in the Facebook group. So stay tuned for that, guys. We hope to see you there. We're really excited to get really even closer with our patrons and our fans, and I think this is a great way to do that. If you want to join Houndsman XP on Patreon, it's as simple as going to our website at houndsmanxp.com, and at the top, you'll see a tab called Patreon. Click that. Join us at whatever subscription level you want. You can also go to patreon.com, and you can, in the top right search bar, search for Houndsman XP, and boom, there we are. To all our patrons out there, guys, we super duper appreciate it. It helps keep this show running. It allows me to do interviews just like this. This was 100% because of our great fans. I'm getting out in the world. I'm covering lots of ground. Put about 500 miles on my truck for this interview, and I'm more than happy to bring many, many more. So with all that being said, sit back, relax, enjoy this talk with me and the legend himself, Mr. Fred Moore. Thanks, everybody. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. We're good. Okay. How you doing? I'm doing great. We're, I'm, I'm with the legend himself, <laughs> Fred Moore. Welcome, everybody, to the Hounds and XP podcast. It's actually me, my wife, Liz, and Fred, and we're already getting going. I just went out and saw some of Fred's dogs, and uh, now we're just chatting about his knickknacks and why it's important to wear a sun hat when you're out in the out in the forest and the desert. You don't want to you don't want to get sunburned too much. That's not good for you. Fred, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. For an old guy, can't yeah. complain. You've had an adventurous day already today. I yes. Hear. You're yes. hard to find. <laughs> no, the phone's right there. <laughs> you were out rescuing a friend, huh? Yeah, a friend of mine had a blowout on the freeway. Just got off the the, uh, the river and no spare tire, no jack, which is typical of him. <laughs> and uh, I had to go rescue him, get his dogs and take him home, and then get a spare and bring him back, change his tire, or he changed his tire out, and uh, then we got going. So that's why I was late. 
No big deal. It actually worked out perfect. I got to talk to John Rudder, just this some random coon hunter, you know. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about the club, and everybody, everybody in the New Mexico Houndsman Association is like, you've got to interview Fred. You're the holy grail, Fred. <laughs> You're the legend himself. And when I went to the first Houndsman Association meeting two years ago, I met you there. Uh-huh. And I distinctly remember two things about you. One, you made me laugh because you're like, maybe we'll get to see some real coon hounds here today. Because <laughs> they were like playing around with us instead of running out and hunting. And that made me laugh. And two, I just remember following you on my hands and knees through the boss gate of that second tree where they had him treating that cottonwood. Yes, sir. And it was just hilarious that me and you were like crawling on our hands and knees through the underbrush. And I'll never forget the lesson you told me right there. Turn off your lights and you can look up in the dark and actually see the coon silhouette easier than if you're shining your lights up into that cottonwood, which was like great advice. Cause I totally used that when I was hunting with Lauren, the co-host of the show, uh-huh. she, we were same thing. We were in this crazy cottonwood and willow thicket and the kid, there was a kid with us, a son of the landowner who was letting us hunt out there. And he was shining his headlights up in, or his headlamp up into the cottonwood and uh, salt cedar canopy. And I was like, turn your lights off. You could see them better. And they, you can see them. You turn the lights off, you can see that blob up there. But he ran along the tops of the trees. And I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different tricks. Different tricks. And uh, in the old days, uh, bright light didn't work near as good as a dim light. The, the lights they have this day and age, are, whew, I, I don't even know why a coon looks at a light <laughs> the that bright. But I mean, used to, uh, uh, I've even hunted with a carbide light where they sit there and they flicker and they sputter and smell awful. So, uh, <laughs> but you can find a coon with them. And the sputtering seems like, uh, uh, and then the dim light, that them, them coons will look at that light and you can see them. Yeah. And then I, uh, I got a, uh, a Bill Boltman light, a 12 volt back about 72, and it was had a PR18 bulb in it with a 12 volt battery and uh, uh, acid battery. Uh, and if you let it sit on the truck seat, it would the vapors would eat the seat up <laughs> and this and that. So Man. yeah, that was uh, that was quite the light though. It was a good light. And then we went to the uh, Kohler wheat light, which is a mine light, and uh, four volt light. And then you could adjust it uh, uh, from dim to bright, and then flare it out or, or use yeah. a spot. Yeah. And uh, we found more coons with that light. Lauren's coon light blew me away. How bright that thing was! Yeah. Turn it on, and the whole bosque was like lit up. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, them 21 volt, 28 volt lights now, and and I've had them all. And uh, I still like the older light to where you can dim it down to nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the flicker light sometimes works all right. But... Well, uh, before we get going too crazy, Fred, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us how old you are, how long you've been running coon hounds. And... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, my name's Fred Moore. Uh, I'll be 77 July 3rd. And uh, I've been a member of the New Mexico Hounds Association since 1968. So I've been hunting 53 years. I've been an officer of the club for 53 years. The club actually formed in uh, 1964 at uh, Corrales, New Mexico, with Irvin Muir, uh, Paul Crogdahl, Dick Ellis, Ben Dial, 
uh, a guy by the name of Bryson, uh, and, and many others, I'm sure, but I didn't get to meet all of them. But uh, that's how the club originated. And uh, just something I want to say fairly quick. Uh, ben Dice, uh, Bryson and Ben Dial and them had fence companies and, and guard dogs, and they also had foxhounds. And they started importing fox and took them out on Oak Flats or something. I say, go out past the canyon, take the first right road that goes back in the canyon and, and winds around up in there past the ideal, it used to be ideal cement. And I think there was Oak Flats and two or three other company places up there. But they had a, uh, a big yard up there that they turned them box loose. And that is the original Juan Tomas Foxhound Club. Huh. Today it is completely different. They have no idea what you're talking about when you say that we started the club. Dang. I mean, they imported fox, took them out there, turned them loose, and they had fox races. Wow. With regular foxhound. Dang. Yeah, times have changed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You can't hunt out there no more. Yeah. You know. So the club has been going quite a while and I mean you've been there since the beginning yeah. and the end. How, how has it changed over the years uh we used to we used to have a lot of field trials uh drag races and stuff with a uh a leather drag with coon scent on it and drag it around and then put it up a tree and you had a drag race course and then usually about 50 yards from the tree you had what to call the line and it was about 50 yards from point A to point B. The dogs had to cross between point A and point B to qualify for the tree, and then they would go in and tree. And you got first, second, third for line, and first, second, third for uh, uh, the tree. Mm -hmm. And then they would take the heat winners and advance them to the finals. And the first one I went to was a 69 or 70, I guess, and they was giving ribbons out. That was on the north side of Corrales at a place called Trucius. It was uh, just a big old farm field, but right there on the Rio Grande River. Changed a lot. Now it's like a, the UKC thing. That no, is, you can't. It's blown me away. This, this whole world I'm learning about, the coon hunting competition world is a big deal. Yes, yes. Do you still do that? or We held our... The theory back then was that our dogs, there wasn't enough coons and too much trash and you get too many minus points if you couldn't do any good. So we had a club down at uh, Sabinal uh, below Berlin at Rube Rossinder's house. And our first UKC night hunt was in 1972. And we had 40 dogs show up for the, uh, for the night hunt. We had 10 casts. And wow. we've never had a hunt that big since then. But we had them come in from... Uh, from Texas and Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, uh, Utah, and California. They all come in. The little one-horse club back then. <laughs> Have you been hunting in New Mexico for essentially all the 50 years you've been raccoon hunting? Yes. What do you think about New Mexico coon hunting overall? You think it's pretty good? You think it could be better? Uh, it has its ups and downs, depending on, I think, how the winter goes and how many uh, litters of kittens that the coons have and of course when you got a dry winter and no food and the coon only has two or three kittens to where when you got lots of food and stuff they, they, 
three to five, maybe six kittens. And uh, I think a lot of it depends on the food supply. Yeah. It blew me away how many mulberries were down there. Oh, yes. man. Oh, yes. That's a buffet for them. Yes. And that probably makes a pretty good dense population. And then there's another bush down there that's a uh, little bush doesn't get more than four or five foot tall, but it's uh, called a currant bush. It's got little black berries on it, and uh, and they make good jelly, too. Hmm. Nice. But if, if you were to hunt anywhere in the United States for coons, where would you want to hunt? I have hunted probably 14, 15 states. And I've traded more coons in one night in New Mexico than I did Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, uh, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, Arizona. Uh, I've traded more coons in New Mexico than I've ever thought about trading. Here in the Bosque? Yeah. Blows me away how thick it is in there. I mean, that's... It ain't near as thick as it used to be. Really? <laughs> yeah. They've had too many fires in there compared uh-huh. to what it was. Does it thin out the salt cedar and stuff, or was it really that salt cedar invaded to begin well, with? Well, they've tried to eradicate the, the salt cedar, but they can't do it. Of course. They spend millions of dollars, and and they've got a bug out now, I understand, they've been releasing that kills the, the uh, mosquito. The mosquito that kills the salt cedar. Yeah, the salt cedar beetle. Yeah. But, yeah, that salt cedar, you can't. It's pretty gnarly stuff. That's true. And it's not That's fun to go through when the dogs are treed on the other side of it. No. <laughs> it's not even fun to go in when the dogs are treed inside it. Yeah, and I, then when you get the real bad salt cedar thickets and they're really leaning over to each other and them coons get up in the top and they'll travel 50 yards and never touch the ground. That's crazy. You know, and them dogs, are, uh, they're, they're winding or they're seeing them coons go through. I was going to say, I was going to ask, can they see it moving through the overstory and follow it? Maybe by the sound it makes, it skitters along? I, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. That's awesome. You gotta have a dog with the nose and, and can follow the air currents. You know, it just you need a dog that can get through there and get the job done and not horse around on the track and boo hoo there and boo hoo there and uh you need a dog that can get the job done. You got then, none of those kinds of dogs, right? Oh, I've <laughs> had a lot of them. <laughs> I've had a lot of them. There's good and bad in all them dogs. It don't make no difference what breed you have. Of course. Uh Tell me about your dogs. You're a walker man. Well, I started off with black and tans. Most people don't know that. Uh, Maple Hill Farms and uh, Colonel Joe Bloodworth, if I remember his name. Uh, Big black and tans, 85, 90 pounds, uh, 33 inches from ear tip to ear tip when you stretch them out. So... And my grand, when my when my daughter was just little, she used to ride old Ben Hur. We called him. I should ride him in the backyard. He'd just sit down or lay down, and she should get on his back, and he'd he'd just walk and just take her all over the place. <laughs> but uh, back then, there was in the club there was a lot of red bones, a lot of black and tans, and a lot of blue ticks. Uh, Rube Rawson, who had one of the first Walker dogs out here, that was a a pure Walker dog. So back then, most people didn't have registered dogs. And the bear and lion hunters now don't have registered dogs. Very few people have a yeah, registered yeah. dog. It's mostly the coon hunters. Uh, which is, that is mostly for competition? Is that mostly for competition stuff? Uh, I think so. And then uh, from what I've seen over the years, there used to be big blue ticks, big black and tans, uh, fairly good-sized red bones. And over the years... They've bred them to be faster. 
And, you know, because of a blue tick and a black and tan, the old ones was, you know, track to track, to footprint to footprint to footprint, and boo, <laughs> 15 seconds. And on my own opinion, they started breeding them dogs to be able to run with the walker dogs. Because the walker dogs, if you look at history, walker dogs have won more world championships than all the other breeds put together. And it's not because they're better. Back then, they were faster. Uh-huh. You look at uh, uh, Rex's dog that, that come down and looked at that black and tan. You, you didn't see black and tans like that. Or Greg Fishback's Real racy dog. looking. Them dogs look like, <laughs> not whippets, but they're built for speed. I mm-hmm. mean, they're built to speed and drive. I agree. You the know, last and, black and tans I saw, they looked really athletic. They almost looked like pointers or something. Yeah. Very deep chest, yeah. narrow waist. They have red over the And the Walker dog, uh, for myself and a lot of breeders, uh, they think they bred the nose out of the Walker dog. Uh, they don't have the cold nose like they used to. Uh, I've always had cold nose dogs. Finley River Chief, one of the foundation deals, he, he put the nose in the Walker dogs. Uh, Johnson's Banjo was the one that put the tree in them. Uh, one of the first walker dogs that I got, I got from Roger Hawkins, that was the photographer for American Cooner. And this dog was directly out of, uh, uh, not directly out, Feaster's Big Jim, which used to write the article for Tree and Walkers, uh, out of his dog, which was straight out of Johnson's Banjo. And then the mother to this dog was a Finley River Queen, the original Finley River Queen which was out of Finley River Chief. And those, there's your two biggest names, you know, and Walker dogs. When you, if you go back far enough on all of them, they're going back to Banjo or Finley River Chief. Or a lot of. Are you popular? <laughs> what, so why are you, why'd you switch over to Walker's Die Hard? Do you like their speed? Well, I had black and tans, and then I've had blue ticks, and I've had plot dogs, and uh, back about 71 or 72, I got a dog from Polo Sanchez that was a 10-year-old walker female, and she was registered, and I got her daughter. And at 10 years old, she outdid everything that I hunted against. You know, I mean, just club hunts and night hunts. And something that's unbelievable, we used to have... uh, club hunts and we'd have uh, a dollar a dog and two dogs per person well you get 10 people show up and we would hunt 20 dogs which is unheard of and we would tree coons <laughs> you know it didn't make no difference we tree coons but it was interesting uh Irvin Muir had beagle dogs and he hunted with us beagle dogs they wouldn't run rabbits and they would tree and they would tree as hard as any walker dog alive. Really? Yes, he had a bunch of them. Uh, uh, Troubles was his best. He was a, a 10-inch high beagle. and uh, uh, She loves beagles. <laughs> oh, does he? Oh, this little dog, she'd have both feet on the tree, and only, she only that high off the ground when, when she had her feet off the ground. <laughs> and uh, she would tree with, she could tree 125 barks a minute. Wow. Yeah. Dang. And back in them days, we... Uh, we run fox. Uh, little kit fox or gray fox, I call them, little swift fox. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
you could tell the difference with Irvin's Beagles in there and the big dogs. When the big dogs was up in front of the Beagles, it was fairly open. They could run. Then when you got to the salt cedar thickets and the Russian olive thickets, then the Beagles would take off. Huh. And they would get in front of all them dogs and work your track out. They kept going. Really? But I guess you, that little size just helps yeah. them push through there. But, you know, it would take half hour, 45 minutes to an hour to tree a fox. And then once they treed, you didn't have much time to get in there and look at it because as soon as he rested, that sucker would just come right down the tree and he'd look at them dogs and then he'd just sail over the top of them, hit the ground, and he was gone. That's them, crazy. Them little old fox climb a tree just like a coon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, gray was, foxes have amazing uh, ability to climb. The, the first hunt I went on at night, uh, my hunting money was old Dino Bowens, and then we went with a guy by the name of uh, Perry Peckham, and he had six black and tans. He had uh, a couple of registered black and tans. He had a uh, uh, blue tick bloodhound, and he had a beagle bloodhound. And then he had one other dog. I forget what her name was. But we went down off of Rio Bravo on the Rio Grande River. And about 45 minutes later, we had a, a fox up a tree. And uh, I've been coming out never since. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just got hooked. Yeah. I mean, I said, I was going to ask you how you started. You yeah. Know, just, and the tree of fox, too, you know. Yeah. But it didn't take long uh, to find out if they run fox more than likely they was going to run coyotes. Mm. So we started breaking them off a of fox. And then in 74, I bought my first Tritronic shock and collar. And once I bought it, uh, we put the fear of the Lord in their <laughs> I love, love a shock collar to train. It is the best tool ever invented for training dogs. Yeah. Because I can, I can recall mine. If they're heading to an area, I don't want them to. I need you to pay attention. You need to follow me. You're about to trash on some antelope. You see an antelope running two miles out, and those dogs will go to that thing at full speed. No, 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 no. You stop yes, that. Yes. You yes. know, and and I just I was. That's one of the major things I love to discuss with guys who've been hunting hounds for a long time. How did you do it before the shot collars? How did you do it before the GPS collars? I mean, I know how you did it, but I mean, what a totally different world. You lost lots of dogs. You spent a week trying to find a dog. I mean. When we used to hunt up at Hamas all the time, and then they'd get off on a deer race and elk race, and you had to be to work at 7 o'clock in the morning. So you get home at 5, you get up, you go to work, and you get somebody to come in and cover you. I had a gas station back then. I had a deep rock gas station on uh, Central and Cypress in Albuquerque. And then uh, I'd take off and right back to Hamas, you know, and look and look. Had a friend up there that worked for the Forest Service, and a lot of times, he would learn where a dog was, and he would say, hey, so-and-so found a dog. And, man, there I go up there. And back then, you used to have the name tags and always had reward upon return. Yep, yep. And you learned real quick, don't we put that reward on there, because they would call up, and they'd say, how much is the reward? Well, i got to make sure it's my dog. Click. They'd wait a day or two. And then they'd call back up. How much is the reward for that dog? Well, what do you want? I want 500 and this was back in the 70s. And I'd just say, all right, where you at? I'll come get him. And I'd show up. And a friend of mine was a sheriff at the time. He'd just go with me in plain clothes. And uh, we'd go up to the house and knock. And uh, we'd go out there and see my dog. And 
my friend would just say, what's that collar say on it? What's the name on that deal? The guy, it says Fred Moore. He said, this is a stolen dog. <laughs> so I, a lot of times that's what we did. Yep, yep. But sometimes you couldn't play that. They wouldn't. They wouldn't do it. So, so what's a good technique to get a dog back that's been lost? I've heard lots of things. What what worked for you over the years? Well, if you was walk hunting a lot down the river, you don't walk hunt a whole lot like we used to years ago. You go up to Hamish, you go to Santa Rosa or other places. You just parked your truck and you would walk. Well, when you got back to the truck and you waited for the dogs to come back, because sometimes they didn't come back right away, mm-hmm. and uh, it was time to go home. Had to go to work. Well, you take. You take the coat off, or take your shirt off, and just lay it there. And if you had some food with you, made a little food there. And then normally, if you went back the next day, uh, they'd be laying there on that coat, wondering, where the hell have you been? <laughs> I've been here all day. I've been treed for the last 10 hours. <laughs> where are you at? Yep. So, yeah. but do you think the, do you love the new satellite callers? Or do you think oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, I've, I got my first B-Beat callers in uh, about 94, 95. And I wasn't convinced how good they was until we went hunting one night with a guy by the name of Greg Arnold. And he had uh, some of the first L&L collars, L&L Electronic. And they was one of the first ones to uh, get into dog collars. They used to make them for rockets and birds and stuff. And uh, we had a, had my wife's, had my wife's dog. His name was Bone. And had a collar on him, and we turned out down by Bernardo and was hunting north. And uh, old Bum was missing, and Jenny was missing. And uh, Greg says, well, here, grab the box and go back and get them dogs. So we was already three or four miles down the river, and I went back, and I kept getting the signal on Bum. But, uh, and then I finally found Jenny. Jenny come in to me, and uh, she didn't have a collar. And I went back and got Greg. We loaded all the dogs up, and they come back. And um, uh, a baby collar, you have to really know your stuff and learn it. And he went out there and walked around. He said, I think she's across the river, or he is. So he went across the river, drove around, went across the river, got over there, and he said, nope, we're back on the other side. So we went back on the other side, and the dog <coughs> was about 200 yards from the bridge, and disconnected the little uh, coax antenna from the box to the antenna and just using it. And then I stepped right on the dog. It was in some tall grass, and I stepped on him, and he was dead in heck, just laying there in a full stretch-out motion, no blood on him, no nothing. I had no idea if he got hit, made it that far, and died, or if he died of a heart attack Whoa. or what. But, I mean, no blood, no swelled up, no scrape marks. And uh, that's where I decided, you better get you some telemetry collars. Yeah. And, I mean, and then I had to take the dog home and inform my wife that he was dead. <laughs> well, you know, a friend of mine, that exact thing happened to him. He was only able to recover a hound because he had one of those collars on it. And it actually, um, he got hit by a car. And you would have never expect that because he got hit five miles away from where they turned out. And he found him off the side of the road because he was wearing one of those collars. And that is exactly what made him die hard about yep. those collars. A believer to the end. You would have never had that closure. You'd just think he ran off or someone had you him. Or, and but, uh, so I was blown away at how nice they are. Yeah. Honestly, it's yeah. so nice. You can't. 
don't turn a dog loose without them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, know? you spend so much less time looking and more time hunting. Oh, yes, because I've spent hours and hours and hundreds of dollars of gas. And that's back when gas was cheap. Yeah. You know, 50, 60 cents a gallon. And uh, I'd still spend $100 a day sometimes looking for a dog. What, what's your, where's your favorite place to turn out in New Mexico for a coon? I don't have a favorite place anymore. I don't hunt that far or this or that. I had that heart attack a couple of years ago, and I'm not supposed to be here, they tell me. So well, I'm glad you I are. Just, <laughs> I just kind of hunt up and down the river, and uh, if it gets too thick and I can't get into it, the old Garmin just goes beep, 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 and all them dogs is here. I love that. You know, and I hunt four or five dogs, and uh, any dog hears that beep, they know that, uh-oh, Dad's calling. Let's yep. get to the truck. Yep. yep. Yesterday. Hurry, hurry. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 beep beep is amazing. Yes, it works. Um, you have such control over those animals, That's you know. It. And and I just, yeah. And and so there, I have so many questions I want to ask you. It's like my brain is just <laughs> beaming off. But Dakota two eight three offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military grade kennel crates. Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy-duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel. Easily fits in the back of an SUV or if you're traveling with a camper shell. It's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling. You just got to check out their Dash Series. This is a watering system. And I've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years. But this system is all integrated into one unit. And the way it's designed out of high-impact plastic, the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it. Check them out. Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that I can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while I'm out hunting when it's super cold. I've had exterior tanks before, and as soon as I go to cold climates, then I've got to figure out how I'm going to get water to my hounds. And... The Dash takes care of that. So check out Dakota 283 at dakota283.com and at checkout, enter the code HXP10 and get 10% off of your order. I, I want to ask you, because I, I love asking people that have been there, done that, how many litters do you think you've seen in your life? Hundreds? Oh, thousands. Thousands. So when I ask you, what, what do you look for in a young coon hound? What are, you, what are you looking for when you're looking at a group of pups to take home and start? <laughs> That's one of the hardest questions in all of how many. Uh, most people are going to tell you they won't. The first one out of the doghouse, the first one to come up to you, or do this or do that, or one that's friendly. or uh, I always like the shy dogs. Really? The ones that get off because they're not going to go to a stranger. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so, and then again... Uh, my wife could just go look at them puppies, and she'd just she just reach over and pick one out. And I said, "Why?" And she said, "Because I like him." <laughs> That's this one right here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. I just I, I say it worked both ways. Do you think that you can take in a well-bred litter? Do you think you could just take any of those, and if you train them well and hunt them hard, they'll be good ones? Yes. You do believe that? Yeah. I do if too. The, if the DNA is there, it's up to the trainer to get it out. You know, and there's just like so many dogs uh, don't tree good. Okay, if it's not in their DNA to tree, my personal opinion is 
no matter what you work with him, if he isn't if he isn't training, he isn't going to train. Yeah. You can't tr- teach a dog to train. Or no, yeah, you can get a rolling cage and a coon in the cage and roll it up and down, but why isn't that dog doing it on his own? Yeah, why? You know, is he, is... if there's something there, because <clears throat> you got to remember on all these coon dogs, most of them go back to foxhounds, and foxhounds don't train. Really? I mean, I knew that, but at the same time, it seems so obvious to, like, look up. The but... only reason there's coon hounds a day, uh, the fox hunters, if a dog stopped and he traded a, a fox, or if he uh, uh, stopped and traded a coon, they got rid of it. They didn't want it. That was taboo. That was that was trash to trade a coon. And number one, they don't, you don't trade. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. And then fox hounds, they, the only dog they want to open is the dog that's in the front. Really? No. Huh. If he's behind, he ain't doing his job. Get up there and get in front and open and lead the pack. So there's two kinds of walkers. There's the running walker and there's the treeing walker. Yep. And the running walker is used for, like, coyotes and foxes and things? Foxes, uh, wolves, everything. They, yeah. They're faster, push a track, but they won't tree. No. Interesting. No. They won't tree, and they can run, too. Yeah. They can, they can, they can run with your... With your Salukis. There's a there's some people that post awesome content on the Facebook group showing running walkers right behind a coyote. Yeah. Pushing the track yeah. fast, barking or, or really catch, quick and or just catching them wolves. That's awesome. Yes. So so yeah. what do you when you starting a pup, what age do you start them at and how do you like to start a pup? This is sage knowledge here. I want to ask questions like that. When my wife was alive, she could train a dog to sit, heal, come, stay. She did all that. And I put them in the woods. And I used to use a rolling cage and blah, 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 and uh, do all that stuff. And then the last 10 years or so, the only thing I have done is the dog is six months old. I put him on the leash and get him used to a chain and uh, take him down the river and let him get in the truck and out and follow the old dogs. And then they just go. Yeah. No, it used to be you you laid drags and you did this and you did that, and uh, anymore I don't do that. I just pull them in the pack. When you when you run straight dogs and they're only gonna run a coon or a lion or a bobcat, no, no skunk, no porcupine, none of that crap. Uh, them pups ain't gonna bother that stuff. Really, interesting. Boone out here at ten months old. We're down at Bernardo again. We got a track going. I was out there on the river, and, and uh, man, they all took off and going. And I said, boy, that old Spice's pitch is just a little bit different right there. I just wonder if that's a coon. Well, I get in the truck, and I'm going to go back to the ditch road and go down to where I can see what they're doing. Well, I look in the truck. I mean, look in the rearview mirror. There's Boone. He's behind me. He's 10 months old. And I said, what the hell? You can't smell it or what? Are you, are you that hot, <laughs> And uh, I just loaded him up in the truck, and I got on down there, and, and uh, got down them dogs was opening. I dropped him out. He went out there, and he immediately come back to the road and come back and loaded up in the truck. So I said, what are they running? And I got out there. Pretty soon I hit the right spot. There's about four deer in front of them. Uh-huh. And uh, boom, there's a shotgun collar. I didn't have a Garmin then. I had the, uh, I had the big beeps on the uh, tritronic collar. Gotcha. But uh, then I knew, and from then on, 
the only dog I have ever owned. He'd never run anything but a coon or a bobcat or or uh, mountain lion. Do you run primarily just cats, bob, uh, cats and coons? Yeah. 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 What do you prefer? It doesn't matter as long as they're up the street. <laughs> that's good you know, sage words. That's then. the deal. That's the thrill of it. Looking at the tree, and I hardly ever kill a coon anymore. Yeah. That's These my favorite right thing about now, it. I haven't killed a coon since before Christmas. Really? That's my favorite thing about scent hounds. I was telling John when I interviewed him is that you can tree them and free them. I love that. You yeah. get to run the same animal multiple times. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You can just preserve your population. And do you think a coon gets wilier? If oh, it, yes. Okay. How? Yes. How? He's smarter than dogs. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have a coon. We run a Guadalupe Creek, come out of the Hamas, and come, and there's a little dam there and goes right into the Rio Grande River there at, uh, uh, not Sandia, uh, oh, all them Indian races, San Felipe and, and uh, them Indian reservations there. We had a coon in there. We used to go down there. We'd be on the west side and, and take a road to the dam, and we'd cut off and go down and being on Indian land, which we wasn't supposed to be. But uh, there was a big swamp down there, probably a two, three hundred acre swamp, cattail swamp. And uh, we used to have a coon that uh, we'd lose him. The uh, jetty jacks that they have, the angle iron with the wire going yep, through yep. them for flood control. This coon could run them jetty jacks. He would run that cable and go all the way down to where it jumped into the river, and then he would lose him right there, whether he went across the river, down the river, or what. But we run this coon for four or five months. And then one day like it is today, with no water in the river, they caught him when he jumped. And that, he, had, he had one foot where he'd been trapped. He had one ear and uh, just tore up. Just a total survivor. And I felt so bad over that coon. I said, there goes our pup trainer. Oh, I mean, yeah. You know, I just, uh, I used to kill a lot of coons, you know, back in the 70s and, and this and that. But I got so anymore. Uh, yeah. It keeps them a little bit sharper. And I don't competition hunt. Uh, I've competition hunted and I've won hunts in about seven, eight states, but I just, it's a different game when you're competition hunting. Mm -hmm. You're not there to talk to someone or shoot the bull. It's serious and people make money, you know, and they, uh, I, re I mean, there's this, the, the, uh, competition scene in the sighthound world is nothing like the raccoon world, but yeah. at the same time, it's there. It's very small. It's very seasonal, but I, I really enjoy just pleasure hunting with my friends the most. I really like just chatting and, you know, hanging out oh, yeah. and letting dogs loose, you know. But, I mean, there's nothing against it. It's just so far my, in my experience. My son up there in that picture there, uh, I started hunting him when he was five, five years old. And, uh, man, he'd get lost. You know, I'd have to wait for him. Here he had come. By the time he was six or seven years old, he was the first one to the tree. That dog in that picture is a beast. She, uh, he hunted her. He won a hunt here the next week. We went to Farmington, New Mexico. They had the Four Corners Hounds and Association. He won a hunt there. And then the next month, we went down to Anthony, New Mexico, which is Anthony, mm -hmm. Texas. Yep. And there was a Border Hounds and Association down there. And uh, he won a hunt down Do there. Do you know if they're still active? No, they're not. They're not active? No. Nope. How has hound hunting changed over the years? You think uh, it's gotten less popular, more popular? The hound hunting is as popular or more popular 
but uh, UKC and AKC and the Professional Kuno Association and all of them, it doesn't click out here in here in Colorado or, or Arizona, Utah, and them states. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, <laughs> the Baron Lion Hunters say them papers don't catch a damn thing, which they don't. But I just I always like paper dogs. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to dog, dog shows and bench show for the confirmation. Uh, I used to love that. I actually liked it as much as I did coon hunting. You know, it's so funny. I, I take a lot of pictures of our hunts, and we love looking at the pictures as much as we love hunting yes. the dogs. Yes. That's the thing I love. And that, that's the thing I've been so fortunate about this show is I get to share in my passion, my obsession with hunting dogs with people like you that have been yeah. – you've been hunting coons for twice as long as I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about the other clubs, uh, we used to have the New Mexico Hounds Association, which was centrally located. And then there was uh, the Border Houndsman Association down in Anthony, and there was members there in Texas and An- and El Paso, and not a whole lot of places to coon hunt down there, really. No. And then they not. had another one at uh, uh, Artesia called the Guadalupe Houndsman Association, and they held field trials about once a month. And we used to try to get them to hold bench shows and UKC night hunts. They would hold their own night hunts, but they never would go UKC. I mean, we went down there and talked to them, but they wouldn't do it. Mm. And then there was another one up at Farmington, Aztec area, and that was the original Four Corners Houndsman Association. And that was back in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, and a guy by the name of Pete Dominguez uh, got that thing started. They held UKC hunts, and Anthony held UKC hunts, and we did. So mm. if each club held a hunt a month, man, that made it nice. And then yeah. getting different judges, and uh, it was a lot of fun, but they just, I don't know. <laughs> Jealousy. It, Jealousy and hound dog people and, and hound dog clubs. Instead of just going for the, for the, the love fun of, the of having it and see the kids work or see that or making friends and good food. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. the good food, the women. Some of our night hunts that we used to have uh, – how we'd have people in maybe four or five tents and maybe two or three cab overs and a, and a, a couple of trailers. We had a humongous crowd. Yeah. And, uh, Sounds so fun. It was. It was. They'd sit there and play cards and do this and eat and, and whatever while the guys went hunting. And then, then as they come in, uh, the the gals would give them uh, bacon and eggs, you know, or sausage and eggs and, and cook for them and, and pancakes and coffee and all that stuff. And uh, that was a lot of fun. But. So why do you think that stopped? Oh, I don't know. I mean, back then we was having uh, just field trials and just a UKC night hunting this and that. So it wasn't all UKC. But anymore, a lot of guys won't come. They go, oh, that's a UKC club. That's a UKC club. We just tried to hold two or three hunts since Christmas of just a great hunt, you know, just as long as it's a hound show up, nobody's showing up. Hmm. So I don't know. Everybody, uh, <laughs> the kids, soccer moms and basketball and baseball. and. Do you think we're just getting away from outdoor in general? Do you think as as time is marching on, people are getting less interested in the outdoors? And by that, we're, we've always been a small minority of the hunting community. Do you think it's just getting smaller? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and you got lots of groups uh, going to schools. 
elementary schools and junior highs and stuff, and uh, they're preaching more anti-hunting. You know, you can't kill, don't kill, you don't do this, don't do that. Uh, why are you killing that poor defenseless coon? You know, I've posted more stuff on Facebook and getting everybody's just happy, 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 and then all those a couple of people. Why are you chasing that poor defenseless coon? You know, and he's he's uh, you're, you you won't let him sleep, you won't let him do this. They can't. Ah, oh, and just yeah, you just learn not to answer it and just go on. Yep, yep. Because they're gonna. But the six states this year, I think, are. Uh, they want the man hunting with hounds. So, and I think, what, Illinois is one? Or back back in them eastern states? Oh, yeah. They're wanting to do away with hound hunting, period. It's um, it's it's going, it's from the far west and the far east, and it's going to move in yep. towards us. And, I mean, we're facing our own battles with the trapping ban that just went through, yep. which was just total BS all the way through. Yep. We're next. And that's what I was telling John, you know, it's we need to stay vigilant. We need to stay organized. And we, we got to stick together. All all sportsmen in New Mexico, and this is obviously a lesson for everybody. Yep. We need to stick together and stay alert. Eagles, coyote hunters, whatever, you know. Yeah. We got to get together, and we can't. We haven't been able to do it so far. Now, I was just always wondering why, you know, like, I wonder if did fur prices have something to do with the interest in coon hunting? Because weren't fur prices pretty good in the 80s? Were they good yeah. here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, back in the 80s, it was nothing to get 60 to $80 for coon hide. That's good money. You know, I know because a trapper friend of mine was, he would go with me and and he would flesh them out and do this and do that. And uh, yeah, he was a hell of a nice old trapper. If it wasn't for the trappers, the coon hunting fraternity wouldn't have what we have today. Mm. The law used to read that if you hunted at night and carried a. uh, You get. And carried a. Artificial light, and any that can shine into the artificial light law states that if you have an artificial light law light, and you shine into any field where they could be big game or livestock, yeah, and in your possession any implement which can kill, you're in violation of the artificial light law, and we fought that for years and had a gentleman's agreement with the uh, game department. That we could carry a flashlight, and uh, and what the trappers didn't know was it affected them too. But they did it. Uh, you run in your trap line after hours. Okay, it's 8:30 at night. You go in there and pow. You use an artificial light. You got a pistol or a shotgun, and you shoot it. You're in violation. <laughs> and they never believed it. Yeah. One of the big. They used to have a meeting on the other side of the, the mountain there, uh, the rendezvous every year. And uh, game department was there one year, and I just asked the game department in front of everybody. I said, "Can you legally shoot a coyote, not a coyote, but a coon or a fox at night with an artificial light and a gun?" And the guy said, "No, you're in violation of the artificial light law." And the reason the law was passed because up north, around house and some of them oh, places, yeah. the Rocky Mountain sheep and stuff, them guys were using aircraft landing lights and blinding them and walking up with a tire iron and hit them in the head. That's a discussion for how dumb a bighorn sheep yeah. can be. But also, yeah, like, yeah. and I, I get why those spotlighting laws are put in, but there is now a, in the proclamation, it's written that, that coon hunters are an exception. Yes. You guys, yes. and that's kind of. there you go again. <laughs> that was the Houndsman Association 
and Tom McDonald from the Trappers Association. At the time, he was uh, the president of the Trappers Association, always been high up. Uh, Jim Lane was the game department director then. And we would talk with him about getting this done and getting that done. And finally, somebody called me up one day and said, he was with uh, the game department, and Jim Lane said, call me, and what did they need to do to get it legal to kill a coon at night? And I said, well, we need to have a light, number one, and then a, and a gun. He said, all right, what do you suggest? And I said, well, any light. I said, any battery-operated light that you're carrying with you. I said, and I use a 22 pistol. How about a shotgun? I said, I don't use a shotgun. He said, but down on the Rio Grande River with Conservancy, your permit you buy says you can only use a shotgun. Right, See? right. And I said, all right, what do you suggest? And uh, he said, let me call you back. He was on the phone, and Jim Lane, I forget what the guy's name was, very nice gentleman. He, we got a three-way conversation, and he said, what about a 22 pistol, 22 rifle, crossbow, and shotgun, and any light that's legal for coding and I said, that works for me. And that's where we got it. And that's the kind of... See, like, nobody I, realizes that we did that. <laughs> that's great to know. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's the kind of things that we need to hear. You know what I mean? That's the kind of ways that you can get active and change things. And it's, it's not really that hard. I, I admit, before I really kind of got full full blown into the hound hunting community, <clears throat> I was kind of one of those people that was just like, let them fight our battles for us. You know, I just want to hunt my dogs and be left alone. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't. Hey, hound doggers, if there is one thing that you could identify Houndsman XP with, it has got to be the message of building unity and bridging the gap. That's why we are proud to sponsor with a company like Dogs Are Treat. Dogs Are Treat is a company that is based in Income, Idaho. It's run by houndsmen. The products were designed by houndsmen. We're talking decades of experience in the field with some legendary hounds doing some legendary work out there. And Kevin Hall has put his decades of experience into building products that benefit you, the houndsman. So when you're shopping for your gear, check out Dogs Are Treat at dogsartreat.com. And if you go to their website at checkout, and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tie-outs, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off at checkout. Go to their website today at dogsartreed.com. We need to back the trappers, and the trappers normally backed us. Absolutely. You know. We're, we are, I think, trappers. I've never trapped, and I don't really want to, but I support them 100%. I think we really are like brothers yeah. because we're both kind of a target. We're on the radar. Yes. Just beep, 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 beep. Ah, there they are. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's so misunderstood. You know, houndsmen especially. We're, we're lucky because we hunt with dogs, and people love dogs. And so we kind of have that going for us. You can take your hound to a place. People are like, oh, they're so cute and friendly, you know. But I, I think um, staying vigilant and, and working with your local legislation where you can to fix things is key, you know. And I think. Well, last year, uh, 
they closed the Rio Grande down, the vehicular traffic. Uh, we got hold of uh, Kelly Rajaro and uh, Greg Baca and uh, Maldonado, the other state legislators down here. Everybody started writing them letters and calling them, and then all of a sudden they put pressure on Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District, and then all of a sudden they come out with a special use permit because the river was closed, and that's how we got back on the Yeah, I, I wrote a letter for that. I remember John put that on the yeah. Houndsman Association group. And see, they had people from uh, as far away as Rio Rancho bringing truckloads of four-wheelers down at Belen Bridge and just parking there and getting down the river, and then they could go from Belen Bridge all the way to Isleta Dam, or from Belen Bridge to Bernardo Bridge. There was four-wheelers and dune buggies, and partying every night, fires, <laughs> and the Conservancy has no law enforcement authority, so they can't do anything, and the uh, Sheriff's Department really doesn't want to go down there because Middle River County Conservancy is considered private property. Oh. See, that's where they get away. And the big stink now, you know, they just arrested uh, a gal for uh, setting all these fires down here on the river. From Los Lunas Bridge, two miles north and south, is a reserve for Los Lunas Bridge. I mean, for Los Lunas. All right, but they're not enforcing it because they got about 200 people living down there. Yeah. And there's a gal, she, she's, there's been 18 fires since March to right now uh, down there at Los Lunas Bridge from two to three hundred yards north and south. Eighteen fires just on the Rio Grande River. Does now. that affect the coon hunting in a negative way? When the fires, does it help them maybe get a lot of underbrush out? What is it? Does the fires affect the coon hunting at all? Is there well, an upside? Well, it doesn't there because we can't hunt it. Oh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, the members of the Houndsman Association aren't hunting it, but members that ain't, uh, they do anything they want to because Los Lunas is an important mm -hmm. But it also states that on the preserve, you can't spend the night down there. But yet there's 200 of them spending the night. I was joking with John, but he said that, like, there's a lot of homeless people down there and there. And I was like, that's a very unique situation for a hound hunter, having to have your dogs run through a homeless camp. I mean, I know it can get well, kind John of... Well, John got some guy pulled up a screwdriver on him the other night. Great big screwdriver was coming. He told him to get the hell off the river. And John just <laughs> pulled a weapon out and... So I don't think so. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, man. I, I'm There's glad. another one uh, where Tomei Hill is over here. He lives straight across from there on the Rio Grande River. He's been down there at least six, maybe seven years. Uh, he's got three or four tents. He's got solar power. He's got microwave oven. He's got a, a electric weed eater, you know, that he battery powered. Hobo Castle. And they can't get rid of it. Because yeah. they don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, a Me and him got into it here a while back. Different story. <laughs> I was going to ask you, um, you know, we were, I was, I'm, there's like so much I, that I really wanted to unpack. But what I wanted to ask you is what, what do you, obviously you live here. I don't know if that's by choice. Like you've chosen to stay in New Mexico or if you could, if you've ever wanted to move or not. But what is it about New Mexico that you love for hound hunting so much? Because you're here. I mean, <laughs> I'm stuck here. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I don't know. I've got, I was raised by a foster mom. Okay. I come out of uh, a Tampa welfare home when I was three years old. And my foster mom was going to adopt me and never did. 
and then moved to Mobile, Alabama, and then back and forth contact with my biological mom and supposed to get adoption made. And then we moved to Carlsbad, New Mexico in 1949. And then we moved to, uh, uh, we left there in 56 and went to Fort Collins, Colorado. And then in 58, we moved here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, I don't know, the real granny back then was so different. The river was different. Uh, lots more game, lots more, lots more places you can hunt. Yeah. I have hunted from north. I've hunted all the way from uh, Española, San Alfonso, and, and them Indian reservations there. I've hunted from there all the way down to the Narrows at the Rio Grande, and then picked the dogs up, and I've hunted all the way from uh, Cochiti, uh, all the way to El Paso on the Rio Grande River. Wow. And then half them places you can't get to anymore. Yeah. We used to park at... Uh, Bernaleo Bridge, and you'd park your truck underneath there, and then uh, we'd park a truck at uh, Corrales, then drive all the way around the Bernaleo Bridge, go underneath the bridge, park, and then we'd take the hounds and we would head south, and that's seven, eight miles through there or longer, and then hunt all the way back to Corrales. Wow. And then Dang. you can hunt from Corrales to uh, Corrales Bridge, and on the east side, you could hunt from Corrales Bridge all the way to Isleta down. I've hunted all that at one time or another. Do you think this Bosque Forest here is probably the best in New Mexico? Seems to me it looks like really good down there. Oh, Albuquerque is overrun with coons. Yeah, but you can't run hounds you, there. You can't run hounds, but they're overrun with it. So, I mean, there's there's coons there that there's coons down here that have never seen the river. You know, they're boring off these irrigation ditches. And, yep. And uh, uh, he was coming up where you started to go up around the curve and there's an irrigation ditch right yeah. there. There's dead coons there every year. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. I've had coons up here that I've had to go catch for neighbors. Why? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're seven miles from the river. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good down there. It's good. I, uh, I'm always really uh, interested in hearing like what people are looking for in an ideal coon hound. When you when you're trying to build that type and body, and really the answer for any dog is it's where you're hunting, and it's your style. What yeah. what do you like in a good walker for putting coons up, and how many well, do you like to run when you put down for a coon? Do what now? How, how many? How many? What what do you like in a good walker hound? Uh, good confirmation. Got to have good feet. What does that mean? Like what what's good feet? Ah. Uh, most a lot of walker dogs don't have good black feet they got white feet and if you get off the river and get into the mountains the rocks and stuff they tear them up yep you know and uh you got to breed for good black feet confirmation of course you don't want a coon-footed dog and you you want him with a deep chest and, and good lung, lung like this one oh, yeah <laughs> yeah and uh because they got to be able to run you know uh if they can't run they ain't, <laughs> they ain't a walker. They're Interesting. Yeah, because uh, I really you gotta want... You got to be able to track. When you hit that track, you got to go know which way to go on it. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, yeah, sometimes you get mixed up and you go the wrong way. 
ball turns around and comes and straighten them out and goes the right way. So many lion hunters you hear anymore, uh, not anymore, always, uh, dry ground lion hunting. They strike a lion and the guys jump off the horse and they go look. Well, they're on the wrong end of the track. So they got to turn, catch them, turn them, and get them back on the track. Well, they can do that on the coon, too. People don't believe it, but yes, they can do it because I've seen the tracks on the road where them dogs are backtracking. You're good. I'm just going to adjust your mic. There you go. Okay. So, yeah, he's got to, he got to have the speed, the nose, and the brains to figure out all that. you got to decipher that track mm-hmm. and put pressure on the coon to make him go up because if you don't put pressure on him, he's going to play with you. Oh, really? You think they, yeah. They, you just, I know they will. Well. Me and my wife will sit there on the ditches, and uh, she'll say, those are coon coming down the ditch. All right. So I'm light. The dogs are 100 yards behind you. You know, they're coming down the ditch. Well, coon goes on down, and all of a sudden you see them getting a little brush pile or something. Well, then dogs go past. You know, they overrun it. Well, just that quick, the coon's out. He's going back the other way. Well, whoa, what are we doing here? This track ain't fresh. They turn around and they go. We had a coon one night do that four times. And then the last time, he went to a place he had already been, and then he just went about 40 feet and went up a tree. And then Boggs went back and forth, back and forth. Trying to figure it out. And then old Hobo, he throws the head up off the ditch. And all of a sudden, he just goes straight to the tree and he trees. You know, he can smell him up in the tree. But, yeah, when you, same with the Bobcat. You know, they, they circle, they backtrack, they do this. You got to decipher all that. Well, I hunted with Lauren, and we hunted in the irrigation ditches, and there was no trees, just those crazy thick reeds. And yes. I'll give her dogs credit. It was amazing. They'd run that coon up. You'd see the coon run by. He'd go into the cattails. Here come the hounds. Those blue ticks just marching up on him. Here they go. And then the coon, you'd hear the slightest rustling in the weeds. Here he comes back. And then about three minutes later, here come those yeah, dogs. Just watch and the raid and they you'll did, see where the coon is. They hunted in the same 400-yard section for two hours, back and forth, yeah. probably 20 times. It was a spaghetti bowl of tracks, and they were still just back and forth, back and forth. But they just could never see him to get him caught. And the coon— oh, And then raids, and you, you get six, seven, eight-foot-tall raids. Oh, yeah. And, and then them dogs probably come in, and— the, their eyebrows was gone, and their noses was raw. That's their it. Chest, their chest was raw. We used to be able to hunt La Jolla up there. It's, uh, it's not La Jolla anymore. I forget which game warden it was. Uh, Lad Gordon is what it's called now. Uh, they, Lad Gordon himself used to let us in there when he was head of the game department. We'd go in there at night as long as we didn't shoot no, no coon. I mean, as long as we didn't shoot not. Yeah. Well, that was, back then, that was three or four hundred acres of uh, nothing but uh, cattails. Man, them dogs would run two or three hours, and you know they was going to tree, and they were going to tree. And, I mean, there was a few cottonwood trees around and a Russian olive tree or two. But And then that crap was, over the years, it, it would die out and just roll over when new cattails would go up. But there were tunnels through that. Yes, yeah, you we know, saw the tunnels everywhere. There were tunnels through that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see you crawling through those tunnels. <laughs> I used to. Follow the dogs. An old hobo there, uh, the railroad track used to go right down the side of it, and we was way down there one night, and we got on the railroad track, and we're going back to the truck. And uh, God dang, all of a sudden, old hobo just breaks my arm. He jumps back. And he jumps back, and my right foot went up. My right foot went up, and there was a rattlesnake <sighs> struck at me. And I said, holy cow, are you kidding me? 
Well, going back, we found three or four rattlesnakes on that on that railroad. Oh, track. I was going to ask you. There in the wintertime, and I guess it was warmer there with the cinders and, and the iron, but uh, that dog was definitely scared of rattlesnakes. Good. <laughs> you know, he saved me up in Fenton Lake one day. Same thing. was going through a, <clears throat> a barbed wire fence, and I started to go through there, and, man, he jerked back on that leash and about broke my arm, and there was that timber rattle. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. When I was following you on my hands and knees, the first thing on my mind was, oh, please don't let there be a rattlesnake. Oh, and in, down here anymore, I don't know. Years ago, from Bernardo Bridge south, lots of rattlesnakes. From Bernardo Bridge this way, very seldom. And Belen this way, I've never, 53 years, I've never seen a rattlesnake on the Rio Grande River. Yeah, and that's what John said. And I'm like, how? That's like perfect habitat. Yeah, and I've... I've seen bull snakes. I've seen little garter snakes. Yeah. I've seen them little red racers. I've seen all sorts of that. Did you get dogs bit over the years quite often or not so much? I never had one bit. Really? My friends have. I mean, in some bad injuries, you know, where they lose an eye or Whoa. Uh, they get hit in the head. They're going to, that stuff just shrivels up after a while. Mm. But uh, That's amazing. That You're the first houndsman I've ever asked has never had a dog bit by a snake. No. I have. You know, and my yeah. dogs don't even hunt in thick stuff. My hunting buddies have with me. Yeah. Man, that's, you know, the thing that I always got nervous about when I started experiencing hound hunting here on the Bosque and stuff was you turn those dogs loose in the dark and they take off running. And the first thing I was thinking is what happens if they run up on their first pack of javelinas? That's my, that was my worry is well, get ganged up on by one in the dark. Old Bone, he's never run anything <laughs> but a coon or a rotten line. And uh, he has saved me more times because one night we got after uh, them pigs come out. It was in front of my truck and we was roading and the young dogs took off and Boone went down there about 30 feet. And I mean, he's at the back of the truck and, and Spice is at the back of the truck. And I just well, let them go on down, let them go on down. And uh, the young dog, the two young dogs I had, Man, they started smelling, smelling, you know, and you can tell when the dogs are going to open, that tail starts cranking up. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> What's that tail telling you? <laughs> and uh, as soon as them sails started opening up, I just toned them. <laughs> beep, beep, beep. You know, uh, didn't even have to shock them, just beep, beep, beep. Mm-hmm. Did, did, have you ever had dogs get torn up by them or not really? Bitten, yeah. maybe? Years ago, down in uh, Hilo, we were bear hunting and on horseback, and we had a... Uh, have some young dogs get into javelinas. Of course, they come straight to the horses, and here comes the javelina. Yep. And uh, man, those things have a—they don't like dogs. Yes. They you don't. Know, and you know they don't see that good either. No, they're like blind. Yeah. They have a great sense of smell, but if you—I've stalked them by if you just hold perfectly still downwind, they'll look at you, and if you just don't move, yeah, they'll just go back to their thing, and you take a couple steps forward, and then freeze again, and they'll just be like, "What was that? Nothing." And they just like—they're not very bright either. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I was I was just kind of curious. There's a Up and down the Rio Grande here, uh, I've treed raccoons, I've treed bobcat, I've treed mountain lion, I've treed ringtail cats, oh, and that's I've awesome. treed cotamundi. Yeah, years back down around Socorro and up this way, there was a few cotamundi in there. That's awesome. Was that a surprise the first time you shined up? Oh, yes. Something? Yes, but... My gosh, he's got the rings around his tail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got that long nose. And the same with the ring-tailed cat. How many lions have you treed down there? I've treed five down here. Big, Between like Boston Limits and Berlin. Full adults, or are they? you think they're young? No, just... big ones. Wow. Big ones, yes. Awesome. 
Awesome. I'd love to do that. <laughs> I really want to see that. I need they to used to cross about where uh, Tomei Hill is. The river narrows over down there. And the river's only, well, we was down there that one night, I think. The river's real narrow there, maybe 50 yards, not even that much wide. And then lions cross right through there a lot of times. Gotcha, so. gotcha. Have you have you uh, focused on lion hunting in the past, or has you still no. mostly been coons? No. And if your dogs run a cat, you're happy? Yeah. Anything looking down? Yeah. <laughs> no, except for porcupine. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, uh, I wish I could find the pictures. Lots of times you will tree a porcupine and a coon in the same tree. Uh, and here's my theory. If the, if the porcupine is way up and the coon's down lower, the coon run up after the porcupine. If the coon's way up there and the porcupine's down lower, it's debatable which one they run. And, and porcupines don't run anyway. Yeah, they just you shuffle know, they, along. A hundred yards is a long distance for them. But I've, uh, I've got pictures of uh, three porcupines in one tree with a coon in the middle of them. <laughs> and I kind of think that them, porcu- them coons know where them porcupines sleep. And a lot of times you go in there and the first thing you see is a porcupine. What the hell are you doing? Get out of there, you know. And then them coons ain't stupid. <laughs> What's the smartest thing you've ever seen a coon do to avoid? Besides that one that went to the to the wire to erosion the control. Uh, I've got one down here now. Uh, two miles, about two and a half miles south of Los Lunas Bridge on the west side. I've run this coon for two years now, and there again, I need to find the movie. I've got video of him. The dogs are training on one tree, and old Bones will make to this house away, and he's not on the tree. He's training, looking straight up, and I just happened to look. What the hell? There's a coon. Well, as soon as I called the, saw the coon, these trees are kind of leaning. You know, they're 50 foot tall, but they're leaning. He just takes off and runs. He jumps to the next tree. And I thought, you know, you tell guys they do that, and they say, no, no. And I'm thinking, what the hell? You know, and then all of a sudden he he jumps again. Well, dumbass, get your phone out <laughs> and start taping. So I do, and I've got him. He crossed six different trees, and the last tree, he jumped about eight feet. And uh, then he disappeared on me. Wow. And I'm, I'm still training. Every now and then the dogs will be on one tree, and he'll be two or three trees over. And he's just moving from tree to tree. Did Some, you hear a dog bark? <laughs> oh, I thought I heard someone knock or something too. Yeah, man, we're popular. Yeah. That's crazy. I, I've seen hares do. You know, you grow up shoot. Everyone grows up plinking rabbits. You know, and until you pursue them with hounds, you don't really know what they're amazing, how what amazing they, they are, and what they're capable of. Oh yes. I've seen. We had this one run up to a big well. So like a huge above ground stock well, like so those big water containment wells, like the uh, above ground tanks. That rabbit ran to that well and just started running around in a big circle. And all the dogs start chasing him in a circle. And about once they got him around three times, that rabbit just jumped behind a piece of wood and laid down pancake flat. And those dogs just kept running, thinking he was just right around the corner. Until finally, when they ran around the other side, he took off yeah. and lost him. And I was yeah. like, that's smart. I've yeah. had them run where like they get up to a barbed wire fence. And they'll run parallel with the fence, running back and forth through the barbed wire, trying to get the dogs to go. And smart dogs will... One will take one side and one will take the other side of the fence, uh-huh. and they'll just run along the sides. And luckily, that's what ours did. They were smart enough to get on each side of the fence and just run him until he decided to 
change course and then that dog goes through and yeah. gets on him but they can pull some amazing things now oh, i've yes. heard bobcats are the most wily is that true you yes. think yes i haven't trained that many i've trained half a dozen but uh i've watched them what they can do and uh man they'll get out there and you see if you can get someplace high and look down and see what they're doing and how they a lot of times they won't jump uh like a coon just runs up to a tree and he crawls over a cattle he'll leave 10 foot from the tree and then hit it and then go through the top of it and he'll jump 30 feet out there 20 feet he'll jump hit the ground and he's gone and the dogs get confused and, uh, you know a coon dog he's thinking he went up <laughs> i come in and Where? you're saying no no go slow you know yeah used to i train i don't hunt at night anymore i used to always have my dogs a pacoon jumped or something jumped you know you just you stay here and you shine the light and they follow the light baby and then they pick it up and they're gone now, i haven't been been over two years since i've been hunting at night just too tired and it's too hard for me to get around i fall too much yeah i and it's you see so much more in the daytime uh with what them dogs are doing and the mistakes they're making and and you can see your young dogs working, working, working. I really work. want to come hunting in the early morning for that exact reason. That's yeah. why I like sighthounds. They keep all the action right in front of you. You yeah. get to see it all. And I really like to watch them. It is beautiful to listen. Uh, that, that, that was really magical to like listen to the hounds. And you guys can tell me exactly what they're doing yeah. just by the sound they're making, which I thought was super cool. Oh, yeah. And I really do like that. You but know I, all the barks. Yeah. And you can yeah. tell me exactly what they're up to. It was yeah. really cool. Yes, old hobo there. Uh, when it's dry like this, and the river would be dry, he'd get in the middle of them clear ditches, and he'd just go right down the middle of them. And then all of a sudden, you'd see that head come up, and then he's across the ditch and tree a coon. Uh, but he went down because he knew them coons was going to be on the ditch. You get in a place that he didn't want to hunt, just load him up and take him down. When you dropped him, and then all of a sudden he dropped. And went down right down the middle of it, just swimming if he had to go the wrong way or against the current. Uh, and then all of a sudden, that head would go up. When that head go up, the race was on. That's awesome. What's yeah. the longest coon race you've ever had? Years ago, we used to have some 45 minutes to an hour long. And nobody believes that. But we did. Oh, no, you're running fox. You're doing this. We had a guy one night come over from Grants, New Mexico. and supposed to have some pretty good dogs and we was down at the 346 bridge where they just burned and we was on the east side going south and that's all the way to the end that's about eight nine miles through there and we hit and they went down that ditch and they'd cross the ditch road and then they'd go back to the ditch and on and on that guy said oh so and so ain't in that race <laughs> and when one guy says well you better get a coon dog then <laughs> you know and uh, we got way on down there and i mean it was hot just like it is right now, and they sat down and trade. We got up there, and it's a big old long skinny coon, had great big long legs on him and a body about like that, you know. And just, a weasel coon. He was way long. <laughs> Ridge runners, we call them. Ridge runners. Ridge runners. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I've always wondered, like, what is a, a really good running coon, right? Because everything about me is running. <laughs> yeah. So what's a yeah. good running coon? How far can they go and and – yeah, what are they capable of? I mean, oh yeah, and you get up from the mountains, you know, and them, them coons used to them high altitudes and stuff. Do you uh, like to go up to high altitude coons, or do you like to hunt down here in the river bottoms? I don't know more. I yeah. have a little difficulty breathing up there now. 
even when the smoke was coming in here yeah. bad, I was having a little problem breathing. Those forest fires are nasty. That smoke is but, bad uh, right now. One night up at Hamas, we was on a full moon about this time of year. I was hunting with old B.B. Gonzalez, and uh, I had two deer broke dogs, and we used them for strike dogs. And we started at uh, Soda Dam. I don't know if you know where that is or not. There At Hamas, there's a little creek comes down through there, and Soda Dam's a little falls there. And then there's a place that's a monastery where they used to take all the the uh, Catholic priests that were uh, alcoholics and pedophiles, and they put them there to rehabilitate them. And from there up to top, La Cueva was, I don't know, seven, eight miles, maybe longer. We treed 13 singles one night. 13 singles. Whoa. And I mean the pine trees that's 80, 90, 100 foot tall. Yeah, yeah. And Dang. some of them pine trees... You'd have to go way up the, the upside of the, of the deal and get even with the top of that pine tree and shine the light, and the coon would always be sitting in the top. That's awesome. Yeah. I would really – Lauren trees some mountain coons, and uh-huh. I really want to experience that. That's something I really want to do. I'd like do. to go down and meet her. Yeah, she's cool. Um, She is traveling – she really lives a great life for a houndsman because she works remotely. So she's got an RV or a oh, camp wow. trailer. She just travels around and hangs out with other houndsmen and hunts and – those Mercy. are some well-traveled dogs that she has. Oh, yes. She's yes. hunted them all over the United States, and they are going to be good and beasts because she was hunting them at 7,000 feet altitude. Yeah. And so they were running at super high altitude. She brings them down to 3,000, 4,000 feet. They're monsters. Then she takes them home to 200 feet. <laughs> exactly. They can run all night. Oh, man, yeah. yeah. I was really impressed. Her dogs are good, uh-huh. especially her three-year-old. You know, she puts a lot of effort. Those are her first dogs. So you put a lot of effort, you know, and, and they're great. I had a she great time. all blue ticks? All blue ticks. Yeah. Yep, yep. Real pretty. I, I mean, hunted with some fantastic blue ticks. What, what do you think is the difference between them and a walker? Pros and cons. Well, if you look at them anymore, they're all bred to be faster, I think, and, and to catch a coon quick. To where the old-fashioned blue ticks that was 80, 85 pounds, the first ones I hunted with, you'd turn them loose on the river, and they'd start a track, and boo, <laughs> boo, you know. And uh, you'd go on down and tree a couple of coons and come back, they'd still be in the same place. Well, Where so, this day and age, they they look like walker dogs it's with blue ticks on them. But why why were they so slow? Like, why, why do you think that now, was? They straddled a track, just like the old-fashioned black and tan. They would straddle a track, you know. Wherever that coon put his foot down, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then, of course, the ball-mouthed dog, when he evolves, he lifts the nose up, lifts his head up, and he evolves. And then he puts it back down. A chop-mouthed dog keeps his nose on the ground and chops. But, so so I guess my question is, are those old-time dogs, like, why did people breed those old-time, like, big, heavy, slow dogs? Is That's that, what they was. Is, are, oh, so do you like the faster dogs better? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And it's not that... The old dogs like that was, uh, they treat coons. They treat lots of coons. Yeah. But they didn't treat them fast, you know. Yeah, It yeah. may take them half an hour to treat a coon and 45 minutes to where nowadays when you boom, if you've gone 15 minutes, that's a long time. Do you and like then, a, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, do, you, do you like a dog that will catch a coon on the ground or do you like a dog that will put him up always? <laughs> <laughs> What you like and what you get. <laughs> what do you like? Okay, Boone. 
uh, Boone, when he was eight months old, was already my check dog. I was Scott Collins had his brother, Junior. Them two dogs, when I first put them together, the first five coons that they caught was on the ground. That's how fast they was. And Boone, he, he doesn't open on track until he trees. When you hear him open, he's going to tree. And Junior would open on track. But, uh, and then uh, <laughs> all them dogs just caught coons on the ground. And Boone don't open on track. He doesn't, he's never opened on track. If you hear him open on the track one time, he's straight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he was de- used to be deadly accurate. Now he's gotten old and lazy, and uh, he likes to tree. But uh, when he was younger, there wasn't many dogs could beat him. Wow, wow. And then the old lady out there that's pushing 15, uh, 95% of the time, regardless of who you hunted with, she struck first. She always struck first, and she could drive a track. I, I love that when they strike. That was my favorite part. Because yeah. you're like, all right, here we go. Here we go. You know, and then they take off into the forest and you just listen. Just listen. And yeah. hope they don't run into javelinas. And you can. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, many of the time, uh, the first line I trade, I had, uh, I had Spice and, and Boone and Judy and uh, Deacon and one other one. And uh, Spice struck. Where we always strike a cone, there's a bunch of dendrays there. And man, I mean, they took off. And I could tell by her voice that it wasn't a cone. I said, Oh, hell, where's my garment? I grabbed my garment and I'm looking. Boone's going to be back here in a minute. Well, I look at the deal and hell, Boone's 50 yards in front of Spice. And nobody outruns Spice. And they went down about 400 yards and sat down and treed. And I got out there and I said, That doesn't make sense. That wasn't a cone. So I get out there and I hear something on uh, grabbing seeing where the dogs are and then all of a sudden I hear something else and he broke a branch there's a big old lion sitting up in the tree and he's coming down oh. and I'm trying to get my camera and of course and this is the daytime yeah yeah it's in the daytime he just comes down there and about 10 foot off the ground he just springs and goes over and then dogs Boone almost had him in the air and thank god he didn't get oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh awesome. I mean he hit the ground they took off zoom I said, are you kidding me? I said, I don't have a gun. I don't know how to carry a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. Lord, we went down about another 200 yards, and they sat down and traded again. I got out there, and, and uh, I took a bunch of pictures of them and, and this and that. you got to show me those pictures if you oh, can find man. them. That's awesome. That, yes. I want to go with Brett Vaughn. I really want to go with him and put him out and yes, line up. I've heard a lot about him. He rides the mules. He does the whole yes. shebang. And his dogs will grind a track out for a long time and just push it along. And I always joked with him, you know, like, how long does it take you to catch a line? He's like, as fast as their nose will let them go. Yeah. And they'll just plod along until they finally, you know, start working it down or not. I mean, if you're starting a two-day-old track out there in the desert, yeah. you're moving slow. But yeah. and, and that's the thing. Uh, I If fortunes happen, you know, where I can't continue to run sighthounds, I really wanted to get into the the dry ground lions. But... That's like a huge endeavor. And I was like, it'd be fun to just have a couple bobcat dogs, but apparently it's super hard to hunt bobcats. Apparently they're really hard to tree and hard to get going on a track. So maybe I should just, I don't know, hunt. I don't know. Something. Well, you never know. Yeah. And yeah. who you hunt with. You know, yeah. I was lucky when I got in the club. I lost some old guys in there and, and taught me a lot of the good stuff. That's... And nowadays you don't know. Some of these guys you hunt with, look out. You know, they, uh, 
don't trust a whole lot of them anymore. You know, I think I got so lucky because I, th- I was going to ask you how important you think having a good mentor is. I think it's everything. Yeah. I yeah. learned so much from my good friend and my mentor. And, and because of him, I met tons of other people that have been hunting in the community for decades. And I really felt like I gained years of knowledge in a few months. And I'm still learning every day. And I continue to like keep an open mind and talk to people. But I was going to ask, I mean, did you? who was your mentor's name, you think? Who was the most influential coon hunter in your life? Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, that's been a long time ago. Uh, Urban Muir, the one with the beagles. Uh, that man had patience. You got to have patience, you know, when you're starting out. And you, you got to learn to understand what the dog is doing uh, and what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, patience and desire. How old were you when you were hunting with him? Uh, 20, 24, something like that. 68, I was born in 44, uh, 24 years old. I, I got into hunting when I was, I got pretty good in dogs when I was 26. Yeah, honey? 26? Yeah. Yeah. And you said your wife really liked your hounds too, huh? Oh, yeah. Both wives. Yeah. My first wife, uh, man, she could, she could, she could baby dogs, you know. That's her too. It's nice though. It makes them easy to handle. None of my dogs have ever slept in a house. Ah, that's a difference between my house. Uh, <laughs> All no, my sleep in the house. Spice, they tell you, you got to bring them in the house and do this and do that. No. She's pushing 15. Oh. The theory is, and uh, Curtis Brock used to live in Arizona. I don't know if he's still around or not, but he was a lion and bear hunter. And his theory was, when you went to his house up in the mountains, them dogs slept out in the snow. And you ask, well, why? How come they're not in your dog house? If we lose a dog on a bear or a lion, and them dogs have to spend the night outside, he said, they've got to be able to stand the conditions. He said, they'll freeze to death. And well, that was his theory. I, I think it's... I think it's totally silly that people these days think that dogs have to be inside to to live. That's crazy. Dogs can live outside just fine. Dogs have lived outside for thousands of years, and they're fine. I, uh, like, Spice got to about 13 and a half or something, and I got to feeling bad one night. And I brought her in the house, and, of course, got the pellet stove going and this and that, and it wasn't 10 minutes till her tongue was hanging out. And, you know, liquid dripping off her nose. She was panting so bad and so hot. And she goes to the door and starts scratching the door and whining. So I just said, all right, let's go get in the doghouse. Yeah, yeah. And anytime you go out there, if it's 15 degrees out there, and I, I usually use straw uh, or uh, Bermuda hay, uh, 15 degrees and put your hand in there and touch her and she just warm as toast. Yeah, and I mean, I, I know lots of people that have all outside dogs, no problem with it. As long as they have all the things they need yeah. to get by, fresh water, a good house, you know, in my opinion, I, you know, good straw home, perfectly fine. If I had a bunch of hounds, if I had a bunch of lion hounds, I'm not letting 15 dogs in the house. Yeah. You know what I mean? John, John does. <laughs> oh, yes, I, he does. I let I got a, I got a pretty decent sized pack in the house, but I don't really mind. I, I honestly like them. You know, I like their well, little sure. faces and stuff, and it's part of the fun to me is to have and a they're little. They're each of the spoil. Yeah, they I are. Mean, uh, that pup out there, I brought her in the house here there, and I first got her just getting her used to me and stuff. And she was in here about five minutes and just just jumped up on the couch and went to sleep. 
And she'd never been in the house either. Yeah, and I just, I don't know, it's, there really is a balance between getting crazy attached to them and like remembering that you need to have a, a really, um, or you have a working bond with them. And things happen to hunting dogs a lot more than things happen to pup, to pets. Yes. And you need to remember that, like, I don't know, like, I know people that'll, you know, spend $10,000 on a dog that has cancer, and you're just like... Oh, yeah? You can... I have broken the bank because you get so attached, and you, you just... You know what I mean? There's that line oh. to walk between you need to understand... I'm on Social Security, so yeah. you know what my vet bills is going to be. Yeah, yeah. When I, when I run over Hobo and got him up to the vet and... Uh, they looked at him and this and that, said they would have to have a $500 deposit. And I said, all right, that's fine. And uh, I gave him the credit card. And uh, about 30 minutes later, they come outside and say, well, he's got a broken right hip. He's got a broken left leg. And then he's got some toes on his right front that's broke. I said, I, kn- I knew that. I said, now what's it going to cost to fix him? And she said, well, we'll have to put him on IVs tonight. And then transport him to the regular vet tomorrow, and she says you're looking at between five and six thousand dollars. And I said, put him down. Yep. Are you sure? I said, put him down. I said I'm on Social Security. I can't afford that. You know. <laughs> I'm not on Social Security. I couldn't afford that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like... uh, I mean, she just had a fit because I was going to put him down. She said, well, you need to sign the papers. I said. Get them out here. I said, it's hot out here. I need to go home. Yeah. So uh, they come and they finally got me inside. And, uh, of course, I had to take my temperature and all that. And they put him in a little private room and bring him out there, you know. And I said, all right. I said, give him the shot. Let's go. Well, we'll give you a few minutes so you can be with him. And I said, I've been through euthanasia before. I said, I said when I was younger, I said, I just pop him in the head with the 22. I said, but I'm... I'm a little softy now. <laughs> so anyway. What's my uh, excuse then? <laughs> she finally come in and, and put him down. And then I said, if you're just, you want to cremate him. I said, no. I said, I'm going to take him down the river and bury him. Just if you'll put him on a, a cart or get him out to my truck, I'll put him in the dog box and I'll take him home. Oh, no, we've got a box we put him in. I said, is that part of the euthanasia? And she said, yes. I said, all right, put him in the box. So it took longer to do all that than it did to, to get the rest of it yeah. done. Yeah, and, of and course, I took him down. I almost have 17 dogs, at least 17 dogs buried around this yard. I was going to ask how many hounds you've had in your life. Oh, God, I, I don't know. How many good hounds have you had in your life? Uh, Real good. Probably 15, you know, and I've had hundreds. I was getting, you know? my, A friend of mine, David, he's in his 80s, and he's had hundreds of dogs in his life and i asked him how many good dogs you had he said five yeah and i was like dang and and that's the thing do you think when you first started you thought your first dogs are the best dogs ever oh yeah and then as you go were they good well i was lucky the one i got was a 10 year old dog oh, and wow. she was you know and her daughter was only four and uh deer broke and and uh, could do it all just turn it back when she was out there in the tree and uh one night I got to clowning around with the guys and stuff. And old Becky started the tree, and I said, Becky, put your foot on it. We get out of the tree, and lo and behold, she's sitting there with one foot on the tree and the other foot on the ground, <laughs> and that one foot up there. I said, see, that dog will do anything I wanted to. 
So that's where I was lucky. I had a dog that taught me. Yeah. You know. I, I felt really lucky too. Honestly, I, I feel like the first one I got pronto, he's really good. Like he's caught, he can catch tough hairs and he's really been forgiving because the mistakes you make, some dogs will take advantage of you or, or, you know, internalize the mistakes I've made. And luckily he didn't. He's still pretty good. You know uh-huh. what I mean? He good. He's really good. And, and that makes me happy. Plus I had a mentor who was like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Yeah. yeah. What, yeah. what do you think's the best advice for a beginning coon hound? A beginning coon hunter. What's the best advice you can give them? <clears throat> Buy from a good breeder. Tracking collars, shocking collars before you ever go hunting. Yeah. You know, or if you're hunting with friends and stuff, uh, uh, the worst dog you can get is a dog that somebody else wants to give away. Oh, I'll get you this dog. It's, you know, they're getting rid of that dog for a reason. And, you know, and the reason is he's doing something they don't like. He's treeing porcupines. He's running, killing skunks. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing. Uh, I've been lucky enough over the years to have dogs that broke off the skunks and porcupines and all that. And then with Boone being a check dog when he was eight months old, anytime he come in, you just beep, 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 you know? So, and not many people can have a dog like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have deer broke dogs and this and that, but to be as broke as he was, never running elk. He's rubbed noses with elk. He went up one, one goddamn morning, one morning and uh, uh, eight or nine cows there in the road, you know, and he's just going, they look at him and he looks at them and, and they get closer and this one cow just come out. They're sitting there rubbing noses. Huh. And then they, the one cow took off and, and they started running and he just comes back to the truck, you know, and like, let's go, boss. Yep. That ain't a coon. That's the weirdest looking raccoon in the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. You know, when I first found out there was elk down in the Bosque, I was like, that's pretty rad. Yeah. Yes. That's cool. And that's where all the, no, the elk are farther down. I mean, where it burned here, late, there's elk in there too. But Do you think the the heyday of New Mexico's hound hunting or possibly even the nation's hound hunting has passed or do you think the future looks bright? What do you think the future of hound hunting is? In New Mexico, ah, we, we have lost so much hunting. You know, I don't have a third probably of the hunting I used to. I mean, you used to be able to go anywhere and go hunting. You could go into these side canyons and stuff and on ranches and see the ranch house, open the gate, you know, and close the gate behind you, go right up to the ranch house, knock. Uh, is it okay if I go hunting with the hounds or, you know, I like to go coon hunting or, or this or that, and my dogs are trash free and they're not going to run anything but a, a coon. And uh, most of them will say sure. Down at uh, uh, Las Cruces, uh, a bunch of them guys down there, a friend of mine knew, and with all them pecan orchards, and all them guys, we could go down there, you know, and we could tree coons all night. Is it good don't hunting Don't climb those? the trees. Huh. Do not climb the trees. Kill every coon you see. If you don't kill every coon you see, you can't come in here no more. So what we do, we go down there, we don't climb the trees, <laughs> we don't kill a coon. Yeah. <laughs> you just leave. We didn't tree nothing. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, are those, I always wondered if those orchards were good hunting. Are they? Stalling Farms, back this way. I forget what that guy's name was. Because... He's got pecan orchard. He's, the mom's got his brother. They probably got eight or nine hundred acres in pecan. Uh, you could go down there on the ditch banks and just drop off into one of the pecan orchards. It was nothing to see 
10, 15, 20 cones just scatter. And they've got all these little irrigation ditches around them. Yeah. And a lot of them are concrete lined. Well, them cones, they go straight to them ditches when they're dry. One night I was hunting down there with shotgun. And we was waiting for him to strike. Because a friend of mine was with me and had some young dogs. And I see eyes about 100 yards there. And I said, turn old shotgun loose. And then we turn shotgun loose. He goes down through there, and he's right where them eyes are, and then the eyes disappeared. And I said, hmm, he must not be feeling good tonight, <laughs> you know, because he was a coon dog. And uh, old Wayne yelled back at him, what's the matter? I said, well, he's not opening. And I said, come on down here. Let's see what the hell's going on. So we come down there, and we walk out there, and I start looking up the trees, and there's two fox up the tree. There was two fox eating the pecans. Oh, awesome. And old shotgun's right there, and I just pointed at him, and he looked at me like, shook his head, and just went on the <laughs> other way. But, yeah. Dang, that's... They are. I was, I've always wanted to. too many coons sometimes. I was going to... You know, you get 10, 15 of them together. <sighs> that can really confuse a dog. Who are you? And these dogs out here ain't used to running that many coons. Mm. You know, back east, where there's lots of coons, they can decipher them tracks. Out here, they're going to have a... Mine have trouble with 15 coons. And you want a dog that will trade the first coon that goes up. You know, if he's going to trade the fourth or fifth coon, uh, we, better, we, better, we better look at your DNA. There's something going. We, no. Lauren's, um, Lauren hunts, she hunts on 10 acres. One of her plots is 10 acres. There's so many coons. Wow. 10 acres. That's, That's two something. of my properties. I'm like, you imagine having such great numbers that you can hunt. It's surrounded by good feed. Cornfields, yeah. agricultural setups and stuff, but there's a 10-acre woodlot, and she can put a coon up in there all night. And I'm like, that's, to me, wow. I'm like, 10 acres. We, I went to a small place. The first place I took her was 22,000 acres, and I was like, this is small for me. You know what I mean? Like, for where we're hunting. Uh-huh. But anyway, yeah, I just thought that was pretty amazing. The densities they have up there in the Midwest is, has a lot of raccoons there. Yeah. But I guess there's a lot down here, too. I was amazed how many mulberries there were. Oh, yeah. That still blows my mind. There was, like, purple. The ground was, like, purple. And like I said, Albuquerque, uh, uh, there's coons. Yeah. There's coons five miles off the river and them irrigation ditches and the flood canals they got and them tunnels that come into it. Them coons are living in there. Yeah, you can't run there's up there, a, though, can there's you? There's outfit in town called Critter Crutchers, and they're handling most of the complaints for the game department now. The game department won't even go on them. <laughs> so, two years ago, the coon the coon was a, uh, a predator, like a coyote. And I forget when it was, in the 80s, 78, maybe in the late 70s. Uh, New Mexico did, have, did not have management authority over the bobcat. So... They made it legislation where they had management authority over the bobcat. In other words, he was treated like a coyote and a raccoon. Well, at the last minute, somebody gets up there. Well, if you're going to put the bobcat on the protected list, you might as well put the raccoon on there. And that's when we run into problems. <laughs> Get lots of coons. Yeah. So, so where do you think the future of hound hunting in New Mexico is going? Coon hunting ain't going nowhere, I don't think. You know... Well, around here anyway, but really, you've only got the Pecos River, the Rio Grande River. <laughs> and the woods near, yeah. like, campgrounds and stuff. I mean, you got the Gila River, you know, and I've hunted all down there. Uh, it, uh, a lot of bears there. Yeah. 
Yeah, we run bears at night. Nothing, nothing will get your blood running more like hunting up in the Hamas, hunting up there at San Antonio Park, and La Quaver up there, and them dogs head off the creek, and they come down. There's a big campground there, and I mean, everybody's got fireplaces going, and them dogs got away from us. We had to go back to the truck. Well, they run right through the campground, <laughs> and everybody's ranting and scraping, and we go in there, and, and uh, we apologize, you know, and they said, you know they're running a bear. I said, no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so we get on down through there, and we get on the highway and get up, and we get in front of them and drop down. And what do the dogs have, cornered? A cub. <laughs> so we just grab dogs, and we're trying to get out of there before mom comes. Yes, exactly. exactly. And you could hear her coming. Just I crashing. Mean, just... Oh, yes. You are crashing through the trees and everything else. Oh. That's a sketchy moment. Yeah, that'll get your heart pumping. Yes. Back when I had a heart. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man, yeah, that's a... You know, you hear a lot of doom and gloom about the future. And I do think that if we don't stay vigilant, we're... You know, like you were saying, we're losing hunting. And so I think it's important that we stay paying attention so that we don't keep losing, eroding our rights slowly, you know. But I also think that hunting is getting more popular in some ways and i think i don't think hunt hunting is going anywhere i think it's what what's important is that we stay like legislatively paying attention like for instance just losing trapping you would think no nah, you can't take trapping away this like huge cultural and traditional yeah. pursuit and yet yeah, it can be and so i think the most important thing is education outreach and promote, promoting a positive image for hound hunting and I think that's like a huge mission of this show. You know what I mean? Is to always, it's, it's, um, well, I've, I've said this before and I, I always say this. I think houndsmen have more data per square inch of their brain than other kinds of hunters. Cause you got to know everything about your quarry plus everything about the dogs, veterinary care, scent and biology. I mean, you know, so much about how they smell and move through the world all without using their eyes. And, and you can really, Houndsmen, I've been blown away with how houndsmen are perceiving the world at night. How just by the sound of their dogs and how they're moving through the forest, you can tell me what's going on down there. And then you look at that GPS and it's exactly That's, what they're doing. That there has made it so much easier. Uh, knock on wood, worse than wood at <laughs> quick. Since I went to the BB collars uh, and the GPS collars, I've never had to leave a dog overnight. Love that. And that is such a comfort. I'll tell you what, the wives get attached to them. You're in trouble if you lose it. <laughs> you know. Would you and be like, sad? Would you be sad if I lost a dog? Oh yeah. <laughs> She's like, oh yes. I yeah. would be too. You may sleep on the couch a while. <laughs> uh, Sue used to train them. We had one dog she called Bum, and he was a big dog, about 85 pounds, and almost pure white with a red head. And uh, she started training him, and I didn't think much about it. And one day, I come home from work, and she says, I want to show you what Bum does. She said, uh, put him on a leash. So I put him on a leash, you know, and he's right here. And I didn't say a word. I, one time I said, heel, and I took off, and he's right there. When I stopped, he stopped, set. When I took off, he took off. And then uh, she says, unhook the leash and put your hand in front of his nose and tell him to stay. So I did. She says, now walk toward me. And I walked toward her, and he stood there. And he sat there. And he sat there. And she says, bum. And you expect him to come? No. 
Bum. No. Bum. Come. God, here he comes. Round the back on the left side and sit. And that's that's the way she trained him. And I lost him when he was three years old. Oh. Uh, that's the one that we had to find with the tracking collar. That's mm. when I went to tracking collars. Yep. I was being hard-headed, didn't think they was worth it. And then one night. They're worth it. Yeah. Tracking collars, yeah. They're not. So many anti-hunters and stuff think, well, you guys turn them damn dogs loose. And uh, you just go back and start drinking beer or, or drinking coffee. And you're sitting there on your garment. And then when they tree, you take off. <laughs> no. Not even close. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's a. People believe that story. I know. And that's what we're here to say. You know yeah. what I mean? We're here to put it out to the wider world from experts and like you and people that have done it. No, not at all. It's so much work. And it's it's so much um, experience and interpretation. And like we always say, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big game hunter. So this is no dig on big game hunting. But like you can put a gun in a locker, sighted in rifle in a locker, pick it up next year, and it's ready to rock and roll. You can't just go put a hound out in a locker. No. You got to be working with him all the time, feeding, yeah. care, and practice training, you know, and, yeah. and so there's yeah. so much work, especially when you start getting into more and more of them, you know. And getting vaccinations, heartworm prevention, you know, flea and tick. Maintenance. Of course, I, I'm the old-fashioned hunter. I use that ivermectin, that paste. Yeah. I use a, a little bit bigger than the size of an aspirin. On the first of every month, I give them a dose. And uh, just as a hindsight here, first dog I bought Back in 68, not bought, but one of the first dogs I got with, uh, he's one of the first dogs in New Mexico to come down with heartworms, and that was in 68. And they had cured him of it, supposedly, and then after a while, I noticed up in the mountains uh, he was running out of gas. And then he started, he didn't want to cross the creek, you know, and he he loved water, but he, he didn't want to cross the creek. And uh, it was getting worse and worse, and finally took him in, and he had heartworms again. Well, back then, they didn't really know how to treat heartworms. And they were giving him some stuff. If I remember right, it was called DNP. It was a yellow injectable for hookworms. And that's what they was curing him with. And back then, they didn't know there was mm -hmm. nothing to cure him with. Yeah. But uh, Ivermectin is it. I mean, that's you know, a hard guard is Ivermectin. Yeah. Yep, it works. So, that's preventative. Yeah. It stays in their system. And it works for most of the other worms. You know, yeah. your worms and hookworms. And, although I do think now that maybe Mother Nature is... Uh, changing course a little bit on the ivermectin and they're fighting against it getting resistant and the ukc website some of the guys are saying the same thing but the ivermectin isn't working like it used to well it makes sense they're evolving a resistance over yeah. time well it's been 50 60 years exactly do you do you have fleas and ticks up here in the desert or not really oh uh, wood dog houses i've noticed i've gone to them igloo dog houses and since i went to them i haven't had any up here at all mm. And uh, fleas, I haven't had much. Now, down the valley where I used to live at Peralta, the ground was covered in fleas oh. were removed. So, yeah, the fleas are bad down by the river. But, yeah. like, we live up in the high desert and sands. The ticks. Oh, you know, yeah. The ticks. I got chickens for the ticks when we lived down in the valley, and the chickens ate every single tick, never saw a tick on a dog again. The chickens would be just devouring ticks all day long. I used oh, my, uh, my son lives next door to me, and they've got about. 20 chickens over there now. 20 chickens and two bullies and <laughs> about five ducks. Ah, yeah. They, yeah. they can get down. They, and they're yep. always scratching around looking. Oh, yes, yes. I like and it. And all the weeds, uh, there won't be no weeds or nothing else. The ducks I, graze I need it. to let them in here because this place, 
I bought this place in uh, 2003. I've been up here since 2003. And the wind blows up here and the sand blows. Ah. Yep, yep. I actually started that grassland over there. It looks like it's good for running coursing dogs in there. I saw that and I was like, well, I better go grab Fred. Well, that's where Gail runs. Oh, she yeah. She just lives on over. She goes over there someplace. But Gail, bless her heart, she, uh, she hates for them to kill a rabbit. And uh, so much of that's when you get your garment and you can see how much private property is where she hunts. It's hard. Because, I mean, every two or three acres is owned by somebody else. Mm. But, I mean, there's nobody there. It's all vacant. Yep. But uh, That looks like a good spot yeah, up in there. Yeah, but bless her heart. Uh, she's been as good as gold to me. Me and her talk quite a bit. Yeah, sometimes. she's been really nice to me, too. Yeah. Yeah, I want and to meet her. I'd like to have her on the I show. I would like to see that book that she's got and read part of it. But the price she's got for that thing. Four Tell her to just give you a sponsored, give you a sponsored book. You'll speak good for it. Fred, Fred Moore's got a good name in the Howland wow, community. Man. If Fred Moore endorses your book, it's He's a good. Got Fifteen Salukis that live in the house. That's Salukis. Oh, I got seven, so I can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> Fred's like, uh, oh. yeah. Each the girls have got their room, and the boys have got their room, and then she got one or two uh, doggy doors. I got a doggy door. It's been the greatest invention. I got a doggy door too. <laughs> You open the front door and that's it. Well, Fred, I was, you know, buddy, I was just asking if you had any final thoughts. Is there anything you wanted to say to the wide world of hound hunting? Oh, we had better stick together. Totally agree. You know, if we don't stick together, there's too many people with nothing but full of money that can, they will attack us and money talks. Absolutely. And that's what's happening. And that means to us too. We need to get organized and get in the clubs, get active, and and pay attention. Don't just hide in the woods. We're all guilty of that. We've all done that. Oh yes, and and, and that's when the game department used to have all their meetings was during deer season and elk season and all that and bear and lion all going on. That's when they had their meetings. And of course, bear watch. They the antis have always got someone at their meetings. No, we used to go to the meetings. And uh, there would be 10 or 15 anti-hunters up there, basically, compared to two or three hounds. Mm-hmm. The hounds have never showed up. You know, it's just... And, and here lately, when the, the trapping going on and doing this and doing that, so many people call the Hounds Association wanting us to fight. Well, where was you? How come you don't go to these meetings? Exactly. You know, go to the meetings and let your voice be known. And, and Get a group, get a... Yeah. You got to be able to raise money. And pay attention and think about the issues so that you have an intelligent and well-spoken argument when the time comes. If you get up to that podium and you just rage, it's not going to matter. Got to have your facts. Your facts. Put them in line, you know. Yep. Because if you don't, they're going to walk all over you. It's it's great, great advice. Could not agree more. That's that's what it's Of course, our legislation here, uh, it's so loaded with anti-hunters. And just like when the bandage happened, you know, the girl that's putting on the seminar and stuff is the Defenders of Wildlife. I mean, really? Yeah, that was She's a... She's the one presenting all of it? This was a to- that was a total farce. That, I mean, I have to leave it there because I can get so mad about it. That was an absolute farce. Yes. That was absolute, emotional, non-scientific. It was garbage. And, oh, yes. And, and they didn't even allow people like us to speak. No. And that's what bothered me to my core. I was livid about it. And I haven't heard, uh, the trappers were supposed to get the same uh, lawyers that, I forget about the ones that are 
for the Wilson stuff. I forget who she's out of Wyoming or someplace. But they're supposed to be getting a lawsuit against the game department to, to fight that. But they, the longer they wait, the worse it's going to be. Absolutely. And you keep the momentum up. Well, we stand with you, Trappers, definitely. You, you bet. Know, Houndsman Association's there to get your back 100%. And we tried. Trust me, we tried. So, Fred, thank you for being on the show. We oh. got to do a number two, and I'm coming down this fall, and we're going to put a tree. We're going to tree a coon. Okay. If someone is going to let me see a coon in a tree, sorry, John, it's Fred Moore. <laughs> That's no dissing on John's dogs. I'm just kidding. But you're going to show me a daytime coon, yeah? You bet. That's something we can count on. Fred, thanks, buddy. All right. Appreciate thank you. it.